Salvador was a Cuban spy sent to the U.S. and Miami to steal secrets from the U.S. military. However, during his time in Miami, Salvador came in contact with others from the Cuban community. And over a period of time, they encouraged him to renounce his loyalty to Castro. And so eventually, he turned against the Cuban government and turned himself in to the U.S. authorities. But the U.S. government knew that his life would be endangered. And so they staged Salvador's death. And once the Cubans became convinced that Salvador had died in the role of spy for them, the U.S. authorities issued Salvador new documents, gave him a new name, and essentially a new life, a new identity. When I think of the story of this man who was changed so radically, I think of the Christian. Because we, like Salvador, were once in the employment of another, a hostile force. And God has changed us and granted us a new name, a new identity, and a new life. And part of our progress as Christians is always to remember what God has done for us, why we are where we are as Christians. And the Apostle Paul in this epistle to the Ephesians will bring the believers in Ephesus to remember who they were and what God has done for them. The Apostle Paul first visited Ephesus on the second missionary journey somewhere around A.D. 52. He spent a short time there, but later returned on his third missionary journey according to Acts chapter 19 and spent considerable time, some two and a half years according to the scriptures, where he proclaimed the word of God. Now, sometime afterwards, Paul is in Rome and in prison, and he takes up his pen and he begins to write to the believers in Ephesus. And as he begins in this book to write, he commences with praise to God in chapter 1 for the great blessings that God has given to them. And in chapter 2, he reminds them of what they were in sin. And he tells them that God has not only saved them, but God has brought them into a family, into one body, so that they belong with Jews, one people of God. Later on in the following chapters, he will move away from doctrinal concerns in the first three chapters to deal with practical concerns for the Christian life, how to live out the Christian life. But our focus really is on these first seven verses in chapter 2. We want to divide this chapter into two parts. First of all, verses 1 to 3 describe their terrible plight in sin. And secondly, verses 4 to 7 deal with the incredible 
or marvelous provision of God for them and for sinners. What you have then is a two-point sermon. There's such a thing, I want to suggest to you something else apart from a three-point sermon. I want us to look then at this terrible plight, humanity's terrible plight in sin. You know, most of us are uncomfortable with people looking at our old photo albums and our old pictures. You know, they go back to our childhood and they see our baby pictures. And sometimes they say, aww, cute. At other times they said, oh, that was a big baby. Oh, you were rather small as a baby. And we know that's code language for not too cute, huh? So we, we understand that. There are pictures in our photo albums that are embarrassing, downright embarrassing. You know, the person just take a picture of you at the wrong time with your mouth wide open like a crocodile or something like that. It's terrible. And then, of course, they have a lot of fun looking at our pictures. The hairstyles we used to sport when we were younger. The clothes that we used to wear when we thought we were cool or hot or whatever you want to use. And they're looking at that and your children looking at that and think, I can't believe that my father or my mother would have dressed in this ridiculous outfit. When you take a look at our past, we are often squirmish when we think of others looking at our past and holding it up before us. Our past leaves us with some degree of discomfort. And similarly, when the Apostle Paul describes our past, it leaves us with great discomfort because he paints an unflattering portrait of life in sin. In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul begins, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's going backwards. This is a flashback to the past. And he describes them as being dead in trespasses and sins. Let me just point out a few things from a passage I think is well known. You will notice in verse 1 that there are some words in italics. Namely, he made alive. And that is there to tell you that the writer, that the original text did not have these words, but they are put there to smooth out the language. In fact, Paul will not speak about being made alive until verse 5 of this chapter. So what Paul says essentially is, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. There is no verb in verse 1. In fact, verses 1 to 7 is a very long and difficult verb, a verse in the original. But the Apostle Paul says, and you, emphatically. And he begins with this look regarding their past and their terrible plight in sin. Now, the Apostle Paul, as he describes them as dead in sin, as he looks back at their past, it is clear that he does not mean that only the Ephesians suffered in the plight of sin. In fact, he will go on to show that all of them, that is even Jews and everyone else, suffered the similar fate as being dead in sin. This, I think, becomes obvious in verses 2 and 3 when he says, among whom we also once conducted ourselves, among whom we also once, we 
Jews. And he says, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. And so Paul is saying that this condition in sin is a universal plight. It involves the Gentiles and it involves the Jews. Now the apostle then describes their past. First of all, he describes them as dead in trespasses and sins. Just like a corpse lacks life, is lifeless and insensitive, lacks ability and lacks activity, so Paul says that they were spiritually dead. They were lifeless. They were insensitive towards God. Even though they believed in many gods in the first century, even though in Ephesus they have a temple of Diana and worship the gods, Paul says, as far as God is concerned, they were dead in trespasses and sins. They were insensitive to God. They were incapable of pleasing God in any way. They were incapable of responding to divine stimuli. They did not welcome spiritual things, nor did they do the will of God. And the reason they were dead is, of course, because they lacked the life-giving spirit. Now, when Paul says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, Paul is not suggesting that they were somehow mere hapless victims of sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul will indicate, or at least infer, that they were culpable of this state of death in which they existed. He says they were dead in trespasses and sins. That the cause of their death-like state, their alienation and separation from God, was precisely because of their transgressions. And Papatona, trans, or trespass or transgression, describes a false step, a deviation from the right way, an overstepping of a mark. You were dead in your trespasses because you overstepped God's boundaries. You did not care to follow God's law. He says not only were they dead in trespasses, but in sins. And sin, hamartia, refers to the missing of a mark or falling short of a standard. These two terms in the plural, transgressions and sins, draw attention to the multiple and varied acts of disobedience in which they lived. That is, they did the things that ought not to have been done, and they left undone the things that they ought to have done. You see, for God, sin is not only an act of commission. It's not only that we do what God tells us not to do, but it, sin is also an act of omission, refusing to do what we have been commanded to do. And Paul says they were dead in trespasses and sins. They were alienated from God. And that's the first description of their spiritual state. It doesn't matter how religious we feel ourselves to be. It doesn't matter how connected we think we are with God. We live in the 21st century where people say, say I am spiritual. They, they have some sense that they are connected to God, some feeling within them. But the Bible reminds us that every unbeliever is dead in sin, completely separated from God, incapable of pleasing God. But if that is one view of the past, the Apostle Paul is, even continues. For he views them not only as dead in sins, 
and trespasses, but that they were secondly enslaved to evil powers. Most of us in our society would say we are free. We've never been enslaved to anyone or to any substance or to anything. Paul says, from God's perspective, they were slaves. They were enslaved to malevolent forces, evil forces. And Paul will list three forces to which they were once enslaved. Not only were they dead, but they were slaves. In verse 2, he says, in which you once walked, and that reference there to once, in verse 2 and verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, is pointing to the fact that, yes, Paul is describing their past. So he says, in, in which you also, you once walked according to the course of this world. The first power Paul says that they were enslaved to was the world. In fact, literally he has, in which you once walked according to the age of this world. They were enslaved to the world. Now, the term cosmos, world, may mean different things. It could mean the physical sphere, the physical creation in which we live. It might mean the inhabited world, that is the inhabited creation, referring to humanity. But very often, cosmos, as used in the scriptures, carries moral overtones. It is not therefore referring merely to the world, the physical creation. It's not really referring just to humanity, but, it, but world refers to humanity in its organi organization against God. Humanity organized and opposed to God. And that is why when you read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, this is a powerful statement because it doesn't just mean that God loved the creation, but he loved men and women who were opposed to him. Paul says that we were enslaved to this world. Humanity dominated in its thinking and behaving and its practices and standards that are opposed to God. He's really talking about the spirit of worldliness that governed us. We live like the rest of society. We believe what they believe. We do what they do. We are enslaved to the world. But not only does he say that we are enslaved to evil powers, that is the world, he, re, he, he points out that we are enslaved not only to the world, but to the devil. Again in verse 2, he says, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, and then according to the prince of the power of the air. The ruler of the power of the air. This description is, in shorthand, a reference to Satan. He is described as the ruler of the power of the air, over the sphere of the air. And what does he refer to air? Well, it's because, of course, in ancient cosmology, there was the belief that heaven was the abode of God. Earth was, of course, the abode of man. And that which lies in between, the atmosphere, was the domain, the abode of evil forces. And so he's tapping into a general understanding of cosmology in that period. And what he says then is that not only are they were once conducting themselves 
according to the ways of this world, but they were also according, kata, twice used in verse 2. They were under the power of the world and the influence of the world. Now they were under the influence and the power of the ruler of the power of the air. What it means is they were under Satan's control. He is the one who rules over the invisible realm of darkness. And he goes on to describe this devil as the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, the Apostle Paul, for one to be under the control of the world is simultaneously to be under the control of the devil. Because we read in Scripture that the devil is the God of this world. Not that he is above the supreme being, God our Father, but that he is the one to whom this world has given its allegiance, and he is the motivating factor behind the behavior and the thinking of ungodly men. And so if one is under the control of this world, one is under the control of Satan who rules and guides this world in its sinfulness and opposition to God. He works in the children of disobedience. Whereas God, we read in chapter 1, works by raising of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Satan works in unbelievers so that they continue in their rebellion against God, so that they do not praise the Lord God and the one who has made them, and that they will not submit to him and to do his will and to receive the gospel. So Paul says, here is your condition. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were totally alienated from God. Secondly, you walked according to the course of this world. You were also walking according to the power or the rule of the power of the air. You were under the control of Satan. The third power that he will list that controlled them is, of course, the flesh. And so he says, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know that we lived in this way. This was not an occasional lapse. This was a habitual behavior. We were living and conducting ourselves according to our lust, lust of the flesh. Of course, the term lust used in the scriptures is neutral. And it could mean uh, evil cravings or just a strong desire. The way that it is used in this text, of course, means it is used in a negative sense. Paul says they were living in the past according to the lust of the flesh. They were driven by sinful, self-centered desires and cravings. These that are associated with the body. And these, Paul in Galatians 5, will tell us manifest themselves in all sort of ways, in sexual immorality like adultery and fornication and uncleanness and lewdness in adultery and sorcery and hatred and contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambition dissensions and heresies in envy and murder and drunkenness and reviling all of these are manifestations of the flesh we were governed by our sinful desires he says not only that we're, they were once living according to the loss of the flesh, but according to the loss of the mind. There are intellectual lusts and cravings. There is the desire for praise and attention. There's a desire for position. There's a desire for power and status. All of these things are lust of the flesh and lust of the mind. 
But I want you to know that the picture of their past, this flashback to what they once were, is even more damning. Because it seems that Paul comes to the crescendo of his description of their former life outside of God when he says in verse 3, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. He not only then reminds them that they were in their past, dead in their sins, enslaved by these three evil powers, the trinity of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, but he tells them that as a consequence of their sinful living, they were children of wrath. This is the most damning statement. What it means is that they were under the wrath of God, the anger of God. I understand that in our day and age, this is not a popular notion to talk about God being angry with sin. We live in a complacent society where we are quick to excuse our sins and excuse the sins of others. But for the Apostle Paul, sin brings consequences. And one of the consequences that it brings is the anger and the displeasure and the wrath of God. Listen, the Bible is clear. God is angry with the wicked, that is a sinner, every day. They were children of wrath. This is a very curious expression. Because he wants us to understand that we were once attached to wrath as closely as children in a family were to their parents. God's wrath was not to be seen as something alien and outside, but resting upon us. We were under condemnation. We were under the sentence of death. The soul that sinneth shall die. That's the verdict. And whether or not we feel healthy or we feel wonderful, our sins placed us under God's wrath. That's a grim picture of what we were, like the Ephesians, in our sins. But praise the Lord, verses 1 and 3 are not the final words in the text. We've seen then the horrible plight in which man once lived. But now in verses 4 to 7, we see the marvelous provisions of God's salvation, God's marvelous provision of salvation. What we saw in verses 1 to 3 was the before picture. But now we are about to see the after picture, and it is most glorious. In fact, verse 4 signals a major shift in the text with a very strong, contrastive but. Paul says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wonderful, marvelous shift in tone and in substance in this paragraph. He introduces the subject of a sentence, God. Here we were in our sins, dead to God. 
enslaved by evil powers and under divine judgment. But God, that's the subject. And as I've said in the past, this is one of the most eloquent phrases in the entire Bible. But God. There are times when the scriptures use but God and uses it in an ominous tone. We think of the story in Luke chapter 12 when Jesus speaks about this rich man who built many barns and said to his soul, take it easy and be at rest. You have stored up much grain for years to come. And then Jesus says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you, then whose will those things be which you have provided? You see, God cuts in, interjects. God thrust himself upon the consciousness of this man, but God. He wasn't thinking about God, but God was already planning for him, but God. Sometimes this phrase causes us to shudder. But more often it appears in a positive light. For instance, in Antioch of Pisidenia, Paul tells them of our Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified. But he says, but God raised him from the dead in Acts 13 and verse 30. In writing to the Romans, Paul tells them in chapter 5 that we find it as human beings difficult to die even for a good person. And then he says these pregnant words, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now he says, we once were dead, we were enslaved, we were under wrath, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, intervened, but God, who is rich in mercy, came to save us. In fact, the apostle will place before us three elements of God's salvation. First of all, he will tell us the source of God's salvation. In verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, why did God intervene? Why did God not leave us in our sins? What Paul says, it is because of God's rich mercy. We need to understand that the term mercy is used in the scriptures refer to God's goodness to those who are in misery or distress. It is that compassion that God feels, that God experiences when his people suffer. It is God's mercy or compassion to those who are in distress. There's the same meaning for the Greek Elias. The Bible describes God as great in mercy. I think of the story of David after he had numbered Israel, depending upon military strength, that God gave him three difficult choices. The Lord, through the prophet, says, you may choose one of these. You may choose seven years of famine. You can choose three months of defeat by your enemies. Or you can choose three days of a plague sent directly from me. These were hard choices. What was David to do? David responded in a brilliant way. He says, I am in great distress, but let me fall in the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. 
You see, he says, I, I don't want to fall in the hands of men. I don't want to be defeated by my enemies. I'm going to trust myself to God. And even though he, he has threatened me with three days of plague, I'm going to take my chances with God because there is something that I know about God that God is abundant in mercy. That our God can be entreated. That our God can feel with us. So David entrusted himself to God who is great and rich in his mercy. God is not only rich in mercy and great in mercy, but God delights in mercy. God delights in showing compassion. And so we read in Malachi 7 verse 18, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. In fact, the Apostle Paul could say of God, he is the father of mercy. He is the father of mercies. And here he says, but God, who is rich, who is abundant and excessive in mercy, he links then the source of salvation to God's attribute of mercy. Secondly, he says God's salvation springs from a second source that is his great love. Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love. Not only is God merciful, but God is loving. In chapter 1, verse 2, the love of God is displayed in electing his people. In chapter 3, 19 and followers, his love is displayed in an immeasurable way. So that Paul wants them to know something of the width and the length and the height and the depth of God's love, which passes all understanding. In chapter 5, verse 2, the love of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a sweet-smelling savor. And the Apostle Paul then reminds us that salvation stems from God's rich mercy and from God's great love. When you read the rest of the passage, at least in verses 5 to 7, you will see that he adds two other attributes, which is a source of God's salvation. He speaks of God's grace in verse 5 and in verse 7. He says, by grace you have been saved. You see, salvation comes from the grace of God. Not only the mercy of God and the love of God, but the unmerited favor of God. In verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we notice that God intervened in salvation, but the root and the source of his salvation is really his Rich mercy, his great love, his grace and kindness. And the writer stresses these, these four attributes, so that we might know that deliverance from sin, deliverance from the powers of evil, and deliverance from the wrath of God does not arise from any sense of duty or obligation on the part of God, because God owes us nothing. But it comes from God's free love, from God's generosity of spirit, from God's heart of kindness. Only from within and not from without 
does his salvation arise. The second thing we see about salvation is not only the source, which is God's mercy, God's grace, and God's love, but the act of salvation itself. And Paul will use three compound words. Each of them have the word with, attached. He says God made them alive. God raised them. God seated them with Christ. You see that in verse 5. When we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, God raised us up together, that is with Christ, and made us sit or seated us together with Christ in the heavenly places. So we see the act of salvation. What did God do? How did God save us? God made us alive. He he repeats verse 1 when he says, even when we were dead in trespasses. He says, God made us alive. What does he refer to when he says God made us alive? Well, he's referring to the concept that we generally call regeneration. God quickened us. God gave us spiritual life and power. God changed us. God gave us a new heart. And you need to know that salvation is not just mere willpower. It's not just by deciding to be good that you and I are saved. We are saved by an almighty supernatural work of God in our hearts. He gives us a new heart with new desires and new aspirations. He gives us new direction, new powers. You see, we call this being born again a supernatural change. How did God save? What was his action? He made us alive. He blew within our dead souls spiritual oxygen. He quickened us. And if you and I are to be saved, we have to be saved from God. Salvation always comes from God. We were like that man who was dead. Lazarus had been dead for days. He had begun to decompose. You couldn't be deader than Lazarus. The man was dead, very dead. And the Lord Jesus comes and says, Lazarus, Come forth. And this dead man arose because in the call of Jesus, it is invested with power, life-giving power. And we, we were dead in our sins and Christ comes to our hearts and he says, live. And we receive spiritual life so that we were able to love God and turn to him and to serve him. You see, salvation is always of God. And I know that we talk about faith and we ought to believe, but let's be clear, faith itself is a gift of God. It does not precede regeneration, it follows regeneration. For those whom God has given life will believe. And so Paul tells them, not only the source of salvation, but the act of God in salvation, he made them alive. And this new life that they have includes forgiveness of sins, according to Colossians 2.13. So Paul says, hey, there to the Colossians, he tells them, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. When God made you alive and changed you and made you a Christian, he not only gave you spiritual power, new life, he also forgave all your sins. And this new life comes in 
in relation to ship, in union with Jesus Christ. He quickened us in Christ. He will flesh out what he means by being made alive when he says that we have been raised and seated with Christ. Not only did the Lord save us by giving us new life, he placed us in Christ so that Christ's experience became our experience. So that as Christ was raised, exalted to heaven and seated at the right hand, our lives are now in Christ. And in a sense, objectively, positionally, we are in Christ. We are exalted in Christ. We have not yet begun to share in that in a physical sense because we are here on earth. But our lives are bound up. The spiritual life that we have received is bound up with the risen and the exalted and the reigning Christ. We are in him. And that therefore means that we are not to set our minds on things on earth, but we're to set our minds on things above because our lives are hidden with Christ in God, he tells the Colossians. God has raised us in Christ by union with Christ. We have been saved and we are with him uh, positionally in heaven. The third thing he tells about our salvation is the goal of salvation. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, why did God save us? Why did God quicken us and make us alive? Well, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In short, what Paul is arguing is that God has shown us mercy. God has raised us up and exalted us in Christ so that in eternity he might show his incomparable riches, his grace and mercy to us in Christ. In short then, he's saying that God has saved us, raised us up, that in the ages to come, in eternity, we might be seen as the crowning works of his grace and mercy. And what he's therefore implying is that God has saved us, lavished his mercy, grace and love upon us, because of or to the praise of his glorious grace as we have it in chapter 1. He has saved us that he may receive glory for his mercy and grace in us in eternity. If we engage this text, it must lead us to certain things, certain actions. First of all, as we read a passage like this, we must recognize ourselves as sinners. It was Socrates who said that the most important thing in life is to know yourself. Now, we, we, we can readily perceive the presence of evil in the world. We think of the injustices that goes on around us. We think of the crime and violence. We see corporate greed on Bay Street. We see racism and environmental abuses. We see evil in the world. And at times we may even see evil in ourselves. Because we may detect traces of self-centeredness and dishonesty. And intellectual arrogance and malice and lust in our hearts. We can see some traces of evil within us. But as a society, as a species, we remain obdurately opposed to confronting the seriousness of our our sin problem. We delude ourselves that we suffer from a mild case of misdirected desires and moral failings. But when God diagnoses our condition, 
He sees us in the starkest of terms as those who are dead. We are not merely ailing, sick, but we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have all turned aside. We have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. We bow to the pressure of society. We conform to society, to its thinking and to its behaving. We live like the rest of mankind. We serve the idols of materialism and hedonism. We are slaves to our desires and our lusts. And we are slaves of the devil. This is the condition of all men. I'm reading a story this week, this weekend of a, a little boy. His first day in school, he took a, an envelope to his new teacher. And he handed this black envelope to his teacher. And in it was a card from his mother. And the card read, a message of sympathy. To tell you that my thoughts and my heartfelt sympathy are with you. Thank you and good luck. You see, the mother knew that this boy, even though she loved him, was a difficult boy. And the teacher was going to be in for it when she had to teach him. She was saying in another way to, her, to the teacher, we are in this together. You and I share this difficult child. We're in this together. My friends, we, we, we do not stand dispassionately by the sidelines of history, looking at men in sin. We are in this together. We have all sinned. We have all died in our sins to God. And we are all in need of grace to help us. This is our condition. We are in it together. And so the question then becomes urgent. How do we become believers? How are we saved? The first thing we must do if we are to be true Christians is that we must admit sin. I was shocked years ago. I was in seminary like some of you students. Gone up to Huntsville where I was serving. And I preached a sermon. I don't think it was on sin. It was just a reference to sin in the sermon. And this woman came out. She stormed past me. I'm not a sinner, she said. I was shocked. It doesn't matter what I think of myself. And I would say respectfully, it doesn't even matter what you think of yourself. What matters is what God thinks. And fundamentally for him, we are lawbreakers. We are sinners. But there is good news. You see, God is Savior who has made provision for sin. The first thing we must do is that we must say, Lord God, I have sinned. I admit my sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't minimize it. We don't excuse it, but we come in our grief and in our shame and in our degradation and we fall before him and say, Lord God, I am a sinner. You must admit your sins. Secondly, you must abandon your puny attempts to save yourself. I want you to know that being religious will never get you to heaven. In fact, there are many religious people in hell even this day. What you need 
is a supernatural intervention. What you need is a new heart. And so what you must do is that you must abandon your, your good works and your ways of salvation and you must accept God's remedy for sins. And I want you to know that there is a remedy for sins. When I was growing up as a little boy, my grandparents, they had all kind of homemade remedy, you know, for sickness. If you have a stomach ache, they knew, they knew what to give you. Homemade remedies. You've got to abandon your homemade remedy if you're going to go to heaven. And you need to take God's remedy. And God's remedy is Jesus. His name means Savior. You've got to accept Jesus. Accept that he died for sins. You've got to place your trust in him who died and rose again. I want you to know that there is good news. That we are great sinners, but we have in Christ a great Savior. And any man, regardless of how sinful you may be, if you come by faith, believing in a crucified and risen Christ, you will be saved now and saved forevermore. My beloved friends, my beloved friends, God has a remedy for you. It's Jesus. You must receive him. And you must be saved, confessing and forsaking sins and trusting in God's gift of Jesus Christ. But not only must you recognize yourself to be a sinner, you must praise God for what, you has, you have, what he has done for you. I fear, you know, that as we read through the Bible and as we live our Christian life, we can sometimes forget who we were and what we now are in Jesus. And one of the things we must never do is to lose that excitement because of what God has done. You see, the psalmist says, reflecting on the restoration of Israel to the land, he says, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. We spend a lot of time complaining about how bad things are, how terrible the world is, how terrible my situation is. But you must know, the Lord has done great things for you, of which you must be glad. You see, the fundamental solution to our problem is but God. We have a God who is not harsh and severe and austere. We have a God who is merciful and compassionate. A God who is rich in mercy. A God who is great in love. You have a Father who cares for whom and to whom you matter. You have a God who loves you with an everlasting love. And he has put it to the proof by giving his son to die for you. You must rejoice in this great mercy, in this great love. And you must live your Christian life depending upon mercy, depending upon the love of God. This is the God you and I have. We do not have a God who is just ready to smash us. We have a God who lingers and weeps over us. I think of what he says to Israel he cried out to ancient Israel then, Why would you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. And so he says to them, Turn and live. God weeps for his people and for his children. And you must know that in your troubles and in your hardship, you have a God who cares and feels, and a God who is able to help you. A God who is kind and compassionate and merciful and generous of heart. A God who can be moved by our affliction and troubles. You must rejoice in this God. A God of mercy and a God of grace. 
But I want to say finally, because God is a great God, you must appropriate his power. He made you alive. He raised you up with Christ. He caused you to be seated with him even now in the heavenly places. You must not just think of God's power as something past. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that raised you spiritually from the dead. That same power is available to you in Jesus. And therefore you are by faith. Trusting upon God to lay hold upon his power to live a godly life. To resist the world, the flesh and the devil. You are to know that God has all the resources that you need to live the Christian life, but it is in God and not in you. And the only way by which you draw upon divine strength is by faith, by relying upon God. May God help you to rejoice in his salvation and appropriate the strength and grace that he gives for Jesus' sake. Amen.